0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Our text this morning is verses one through three, and from these verses, our focus is one short phrase of five words in verse number two, the day of the Lord. Paul said, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. First Thessalonians five, verse number one, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. This phrase, the day of the Lord, is a short phrase, but it is descriptive of a long period of time, a period of more than a thousand years, and this is the age in which the world will end. As there is a beginning of life when we're born and there is an end of life when we die, as the Bible has a beginning in Genesis and has an ending in Revelation, as there was a creation, so shall there be a consummation. Time began, time will end. There is a start and there is a finish. This short phrase, the day of the Lord, doesn't seem to say very much, but when we investigate it, we find that events that are concerning the day of the Lord cover Bible prophecy in over 1,500 years as the prophets spoke of it often. In fact, we find that this is the second most talked about subject in the Word of God, this day of the Lord, how he will bring this world to an end. And this world will not continue as it is. Some people believe it will, but it will not continue as it is. It will come to an end And the end will be a great and terrible day. That's what the prophet said in the Old Testament. In this text, Paul described it as travail. And travail refers... It's a King James word that refers to birth pains. It describes the increasing labor pains as a woman is ready to give birth. She goes through a period of time as she has these labor pains. And the pain increases until the child is delivered. And as we study the end times... Uh, We look at the tribulation period, and that is basically the time that Paul speaks of as travail, and we've studied that part, the travailing part, the difficult part, and that's what comes before the child is delivered. So the birth pangs are there, but then birth pangs subside, and then the child is born, And in this case, the child that is born is this wonderful kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that is called the Millennium. This is when Christ comes to reign on this earth. It's the utopia that many cultures have spoken of, even though they didn't really understand what it means. The Old Testament prophets were inspired to write about it, the Holy Spirit helped them to describe this time, and their knowledge was good as far as it went, but they didn't really even understand themselves how this how this would work out and what God would do. Now, there are certain things that they did know. They did know the Messiah would come. They knew that God promised a kingdom, and they knew that God would deliver them in this kingdom. They knew they would worship God in this kingdom, and that it would extend across every landmass, every nation... And that the king would rule all tribes and all kindreds of this earth. And they didn't know exactly how, but they knew that all people would be subject to the king. Jews and Gentiles alike would worship God together. Or at least they thought this, that Gentiles would recognize and surrender to the king and the Jews would rule over them. I mean, any understanding of the Bible has to recognize the hostility that exists between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews have always been a persecuted people. They've always been different because God intended them to be different. God wanted them to be separate from all other people because they are His people. And so it it turns out, and you know it well, that when people are different, uh, those that are out of the mainstream are always a problem for others. They don't fit into the world system. And as Christians, you've experienced it. Because the world is hostile to God, the world is also hostile to believers who are God's people. Difference breeds persecution. And so this good news of the Golden Age was a source of great hope and anticipation for the Jewish people. The prophets foretold of dark days that would come before it. They said tribulations will even be worse than anything that you've ever experienced. The millennial kingdom will be rush, ushered in through these dark days, but then the pain will subside, and then there's this peace and prosperity of a better world as God's people live under the protection of the king. The kingdom, of course, we've said is known as the millennial kingdom. The time period is millennium, a millennium, that's Latin for a thousand years. And in this part of our study, the end times, this, this is what we're, we're discussing at this point, We are discussing the kingdom, and we've called it the resplendent millennium. This is a different world. It's a world that has one ruler. There is one government. It's a kingdom with great beauty and magnificent splendor. And it's a kingdom that is for the glory of God. I'd also mention that there is physical beauty in this kingdom. Our world has many beautiful places... I love mountains. Most of our vacations include at least some sort of a visit to mountainous areas. For the past three years, when my wife's health was better, we we traveled through the Canadian Rockies to see the gorgeous mountain vistas of that area, the raging waterfalls, the deep snows, the glaciers, the amazing lakes and canyons of places like Jasper National Park in Alberta. I love to visit those kinds of places. I I like going to the Grand Canyon and to others of our national parks. Our travels in the past years have taken us to Carlsbad Caverns, to Zion National Park, the Grand Tetons, Yellowstone, Olympic National Park, the Great Basin, the Smoky Mountains, Mammoth Cave, and the Badlands and such places. And we love to see this earth's beauty, what God has created and many of these magnificent places that we see were born out of one great cataclysmic event. God destroyed the world with a flood. The Bible says the fountains of the deep were broken up and it was a terrible deluge. But out of it was created an astounding geographical world with features that are, that are amazing from the high mountains of Tibet to the lowest valleys like Death Valley. And in the future... The results of the worst judgment that the world will see, the tribulation, will bring forth even more spectacular beauty. The world will see in the tribulation time the prophecy of dark days fulfilled, earthquakes and volcanoes, meteor showers. Uh, The Bible describes a darkened sun and a blood-red moon. But then what happens? The catastrophes are over. The haze of all the destruction lifts and left behind is a different earth topography. The world will look very much different, a different earth topography. Now, if you think of the Grand Canyon, carved by the Noahic flood, and I'm sure you're not going to hear that when you go to visit the Grand Canyon. They won't tell you that's where it came from. But you behold the wonders of the aftermath of the tribulation in comparison, that God will change this world's features Where we have perhaps now uh, maybe a few dozen dazzling national parks, it's nothing like the national park system of the millennial kingdom. The kingdom will be filled with natural beauty that's born out of the world's restructured landscape. But the topography of it is not the only change. Topography is inanimate. God also plans to change the inanimate world. These are things that we've discussed. In the millennium, there's also a different life expectancy. The kingdom is a world in which conditions are favorable to increase the longevity of life. Harmful aging processes will be limited. Better and more abundant food will be available. Hunger will end. And perhaps best of all, the kingdom reflects the character of the king in respect to his creation of human life. He heals diseases, or better still, we might say that he is the vaccine for what ails you because he'll stop disease before it starts. People will live to be longer, and a person reaching 100 years old, that will be no more significant than a child's fifth birthday. And then I might add that children will live because God gives life. He respects life. He's not a cold, calculating killer like the pro-choice movement today. Thirdly, it's a world with a, a change in the relationship between man and animals and between animals and animals. Now, we called this in our last message the, the difference in animals relationally. Because of Adam's fall, the world in every aspect was cursed, animals were cursed, and that caused a change in the way that they relate to each other and to man. This curse brought death into the entire creation and so there became predator and prey but when we get into the millennial kingdom this curse is reversed it's a golden age in which there in which death is changed the predation between beast will change the wolf and the lamb the word of god says will live together the lion and the cattle on the savannah will peaceably live side by side the lion will eat straw like the ox instead of looking at the ox as his next meal The relationship between people and animals will change. There's no need for people to fear animals, nor animals people. Wild beasts won't threaten. No worries that a snake will bite or a scorpion will sting. And so the entire world will live in peace and harmony. The Bible says the world will be delivered from the curse. The cursed ground that now brings forth thorns and thistles that choke out the farmer's crops. That's all going to be done away with. And animals that were subjected to the curse unwillingly, as Romans 8 says, will be restored to peace and harmony. So those are areas of the kingdom that we discussed in more detail in previous messages. And so I want to go on today to examine more of the difference in the coming kingdom by noting this change, that there is a different social morality. Now today, our government doesn't really care too much about your morality, I mean, how how could it when our leaders are pretty much terribly immoral people? Integrity used to be a requirement for public office, especially for the president and Congress. Decency and morality were, were required, or at least they were anticipated. We hoped and believed that our leaders were good moral people. But the government can hardly be concerned now with the way that you act and what your morality is when they're very unconcerned with their own. And that's not mainly a Trump problem. It's a system-wide problem with the other party and with third parties and fourth parties. And maybe that's what we could call it. Government is just a party, a debauched, derelict, despicable party. You've heard in these past few months about the legislatures and governors of New York and Virginia They passed laws or attempted to pass laws that guaranteed the right of parents and doctors to kill babies outside of the womb if they're undesirable or decide that they won't be of any worth to society, any practical worth. Infanticide is the slippery slope of Roe versus Wade. And so the left continually shouts, let's do it, let's kill them, let's get rid of them. And we find that the left is quickly becoming the new center. And and you have to ask, what kind of morality is this? I mean, would people consider even for a split second of putting a murderer in the presidency? But I suppose that we do because all choices in next year's election on one side are all in favor of murdering babies. America is barbaric. There's a bloodthirst in this country that's not going to stop with killing babies. I mean, if we kill the most harmless and the innocent, what's the stretch in killing a 12-year-old because you don't like his attitude? And what's the stretch of killing a 30-year-old because he doesn't agree with your immoral politics and your immoral behavior? And how are the age protected when they're no longer productive? We already have the answer to this. We've seen what the world has done. They're being killed. Godless Nazism and communism killed more than a hundred million people in the past one hundred years and it begs the question, what will godless America do? And folks you're seeing you're seeing it happen right before your very eyes what we will do. We have become stone cold killers. Now in the Millennial Kingdom, sin will not be tolerated. Now for sure we know this, that sin won't be done away with because in the kingdom there are people that are in their natural bodies and where there are people in natural bodies, they are sinners. If we're in the moral body, then corruption remains. People will exit the tribulation and enter the millennium still in their sinful bodies. But oh, there's a difference, folks. There's a difference because there is a new sheriff in town. When they get into the millennial kingdom, it's going to be a different government. In the tribulation time, it was ruled by Satan and his antichrist and his demons. But when we get into the millennial kingdom, Satan and his demons will be done away with. They're going to be locked up in the abyss. And so then the king begins a perfectly righteous rule, and he demands that his subjects obey his righteous law. I'm sure you've heard it said that we can't legislate morality. Our government can't, or at least we can't enforce it. But guess what? God has, in fact, legislated morality. He called it the Ten Commandments. Israel's government was theocratic, and this government of our king will be theocratic. People will still be sinners, but there will be a massive repression of sin. A life before the kingdom is described by Paul in 2 Timothy 3. If you'll just turn your Bibles there a few pages from where you are, it just won't take you long to get there. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul talked about this, and I want you to see if this doesn't parallel what we see in our hometowns and our neighborhoods across this country today. See if this is not what you see in Roanoke Park in Santa Rosa. 2 Timothy 3, verse number 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud... "...blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, you'll notice that's much like what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 about godless society, where he describes people that are maddened with sin. And we needn't go into the reprehensible immorality of this culture. I mean, immoral lifestyles are now the promoted lifestyles. Evil is good, and good is evil, what the rainbow celebrates is what God will destroy. And going into the millennium, people are still sinners, but God will watch sin like a hawk. His eyes are in every place beholding the evil and the good. And so what God will do, He will lock down sin. No one will have a parade about their sins. Fire and brimstone fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, and God will do it again. Now, people want the right to live like pagans. Pagans. But there isn't any such right in God's kingdom. The swift rod of iron will knock them down and crush them. And as I say that, I'm not saying this as someone who would delight to see that happen today, right now. I mean, I don't have, and Christian people don't have control over such things, and this is not the time for this to happen. What we desire to see is these people to be saved. We want them to hear the gospel of Christ and be saved. And the only thing that we can do is just leave it all up to God to do what He will do. But I'm telling you also this, that when you leave things up to God, this is what you get. No tolerance. When you leave things up to God and God is completely in control and we're no longer running things, then we get no tolerance for sin. And so interspersed into every neighborhood of the millennial kingdom is a neighborhood watch of the godly. This is God's HOA. If you have an HOA in your neighborhood, you know, one of the things I hate about an HOA is everybody watching you. Did you do this? Did you do that? Now they're going to turn you into the HOA. Well, God's HOA is not the pretend godly trying to do the right thing. These are people that are blood-washed saints of God. They are perfectly washed in the blood of Christ and they will watch for violations of God's law. The saints will rule with Christ. And this is what rule is about. It's the ability to act with authority. Rulers enforce the law. And that's what God's saints will do is they rule with Christ in his kingdom. They're representatives of God's holy law that are entrusted with his authority. So Christ will have his law enforcement mechanism and they will ensure that everyone stays in line. No one's going to do anything against the law in any public setting. So are you afraid today that the government is watching your internet traffic? Are you afraid that Google is tracking you and recording your web searches? You can count on it then. The king will. Yes, this is righteous government that tracks everyone. Everything is monitored. Now, you know there's going to be people who don't like that. And you wonder, who are these people that don't like it? And who are the ones that demand their rights? Well, these would be the sinners, aren't they? They're the people that break the king's righteous laws. Isn't that right? And doesn't the king have the right to act righteously? And this is the reason that throughout the millennial kingdom, even though it's the most excellent government that the world has ever seen, the lost in this kingdom will hate it. They hate the king. They hate his kingdom. They love their sin, but their sin will be checked down. Oh, but some will say, what do you mean? There is no freedom in this kingdom? What what kind of kingdom is it where there is no freedom? And if you ask that question, you have a fundamental misunderstanding of what freedom is. Because to God, being free is to be free from sin. Sin is slavery. If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. So God wants people free from the bondage of sin, and that's what all people are in. Sin kills, sin destroys... Just check out Planned Parenthood. That's what sin does. Is it right for God to protect his kingdom from sin? Is your ruler perfectly righteous and just? And should he protect his kingdom from sin? Is he wrong? Certainly not. What does the king require? Micah 6, eight. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy... And walk humbly with thy God. So this is a king that's different from any world ruler. You can expect that his rule will be different. Because he is perfect and expects perfection. So you can expect him to legislate perfection. Why would he do it? Because that's the highest good to do it. And it's the highest good to enforce it. But what's the the result of resistance to righteousness? The Bible tells us very clearly. Resulting, or resisting rather righteousness has kingdom implications. Did you know that? In, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And what's the issue that Paul brings before us there? It's the issue of the unregenerate. It's the issue of the unrepentant. Sinners will not rule in the kingdom. So what is it that we desire? Well, the thing that you and I desire as God's people is for more people to be in the kingdom. This is why we preach the gospel. And there's only one way that we can get them into the kingdom. Keep on preaching and pray that the Holy Spirit will convict the heart of lost sinners and turn them to Jesus Christ. Now, the resplendent kingdom is truly a place of beauty. The physical beauty is astounding, as I mentioned a moment ago. But even more astounding is the appeal of the kingdom to the righteousness of the soul. That's the greatest glory of the kingdom. That's the greatest aspect of the kingdom. It's living in righteousness where no one represses you because you're different. You live in righteousness and the king protects you because you live in his righteousness. Well, next I want to go on to look at a very special aspect of the kingdom for believers. We've already talked about this some in the preceding discussion. But let me expand on this for just a moment. Secondly, is the reigning members of the kingdom. This is wonderful for the people of God. Now, if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 20, this is the text that defines the duration of the kingdom. And we've noted that six times in this text from verses 1 through 7... The time is referred to as a thousand years. And in the fourth verse, we learn something about the rule of the kingdom. Who will reign in this kingdom? Now, of course, we know that the king is the head of the government. uh, But kings have ministers. They have governors and administrators for the efficiency of government. So the king will delegate authority in this kingdom. And who are his helpers? Verse number four of Revelation 20. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now remember, in this kingdom there are millions of lost people. Survivors of the tribulation will transition into the millennial kingdom, but these are people that aren't saved. These are people that need supervision. And so to keep their sin in check and make righteousness rule, Christ will have his administrative help. And there are differences of opinion about whether there will be a massive evangelistic awakening during the millennium. And I have to confess I'm conflicted on that point. And I am because I see that the way that the kingdom ends... Uh, This passage in Revelation 20 describes that at the end of the kingdom, nations are deceived. And so from all over over the world, there are people that are deceived that come to fight against the king. And that's an indication that there are millions upon millions of people that are lost rather than saved. And there are millions of births in this kingdom because life is longer. And there's a population explosion to where the entire world is populated. And every natural birth brings another sinner into the world. Now in Revelation 24, uh, John said, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. So what did John see? Well, he saw thrones of government. Thrones of government. Jesus reigns, but he's not the only one who governs in the kingdom. All government is under his authority, but he has help. As believers, who are these rulers that help? And I find here in Scripture four different categories of rulers that are distinguished in the Scriptures that rule alongside of Jesus Christ. The first of these would be the Old Testament saints, those who lived before Jesus Christ came. And we start with those because of the multiple Old Testament prophecies about the kingdom... If Old Testament Israel was prophesied to see the kingdom, then we would certainly believe that a major part of their hope was to have a government that included them. The prophecies of David's throne and how the Messiah would sit on the throne forever gave them hope that they would have a part of it. Daniel foretold of a kingdom that would never pass away and that all people and nations would serve the king. He wrote in Daniel 7, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed." And then going on in verse number 18, we read, But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And then if you had that passage open, you would read on to verse number 22 where it says, The Ancient of Days will come and judgment is given to the saints of the highest. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now as Daniel wrote that, he had no idea how long it would be until the kingdom would begin. Many Israelites would die before the kingdom is established and they would return from heaven to rule with the king. Now naturally that prophecy assumes that believing Israel will be saved and they would be judges and they would be with Christ and they would possess the kingdom. And as they wrote it, there's that near fulfillment that I talked about just a moment ago where, where there's a Babylonian captivity. And those that were in that Babylonian captivity, as they heard Daniel give his prophecy, uh, they would expect that a new kingdom would come where they would in fact rule over their oppressors. And so in Revelation chapter 4 in John's vision, we see something else there. There are 24 elders that sit on thrones surrounding the throne of God in heaven. And we interpret that to be... Rulers of the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament. And then there are 12 other thrones that are there, and those, we believe, are rulers from the New Testament era. So there are believers before Christ um, who, who would not believe uh, the the paganistic lifestyles and system of that time. They were going to rule with Jesus Christ when he comes. And who wouldn't believe that there wouldn't be a, wouldn't be a, a, a rule, a throne rather for Abraham and a throne for Moses, a throne for Elijah and many of the great saints of the Old Testament. Many in fact that we probably or we don't even hear of Old Testament saints that were faithful to God who will have their part in ruling in this kingdom. Now secondly, we are certain of this next administrative group the apostles of Christ. They're going to rule in this kingdom. And we're certain of them because Jesus clearly said so. Peter asked about it. His disciples were often concerned about this. So now if you'll turn to Matthew 19, we can read what Jesus said about the future position of the apostles. Now you remember how interested they were in this. They, in fact, were at times a little bit too anxious and interested. James and John tried to stage a me-first coup to get positions of authority in the kingdom, uh, trying to get ahead of the other apostles, so they wanted to have their places right next to Jesus on either side. And Peter asked about this. He asked about ruling positions because being a disciple of Christ was not easy. Christ demanded that his followers give up everything. And thinking of what he had given up, Peter asked, if we have given up so much, then what will we get? Matthew 19 verse 27, then answered Peter and said unto him, behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Jesus said unto them, verily I say unto you that thee which have followed me, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the son of man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What will we get? That's Peter's question. And notice the answer in verse 28. Here Jesus uses a word that might confuse you at first. He said, ye which have followed me in the regeneration, ye shall sit on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Now usually when we see that word regeneration, we think of the new birth. But here Jesus isn't referring to the new birth. Here he's speaking of the new world order. He's speaking of the new kingdom that will come. And in that day, the king will sit on the throne of his glory. And these 12 men that Jesus talked to, the apostles, they will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. And interestingly, that also helps to prove the character of the kingdom, that it's Jewish in nature, also exemplified by Christ's ruling place, which is the millennial, new millennial temple in Jerusalem. So, there are these two groups Old Testament believers before Christ and New Testament apostles that are chosen by Christ. Thirdly, is the church age saints. Those in the church age will rule with Christ. Now, the church, that's comprised of New Testament believers who obey Christ's command to become a part of his body. These are believers that are joined in the communion of local churches. They obey the commission of Christ with the gospel. They edify one another with fellowship. And today's not the day to explain the different theories of the church, but it's only necessary that I tell you now that the church is not Christians all across the world, no matter who they are. The church is those who are baptized according to New Testament instructions under proper authority and have joined in local assemblies where where they are committed to Christ and to each other. So the church in that respect is visible, not invisible. It's a body that functions corporately. It has pastors, it has deacons, it has people, as organization. You are in one of the Lord's churches at this very moment. It began with Christ as its head, with the apostles as its charter members, and it will be in this world for the preaching of the gospel until Jesus Christ comes to take it out of the world. And when he returns, the church will leave the world, the church age will be over, and we believe that the faithful of the church will reign with Christ when he establishes his kingdom. Now this interesting comment is made by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Now if you'll turn there, the apostle in in this passage complains that the Corinthian church had not obeyed their responsibility to practice church discipline And so they were taking church problems before civil courts for adjudication. And here in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes to the church and says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we, which, that we shall judge angels? Then how much more things that pertain to this life. Do you understand Paul's reasoning? If saints will judge the world, if the church will judge the world, is it not within the purview of the church to judge its own matters? I mean, how is the world's judgment in any way superior to that of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so that responsibility that we have to judge now is an indication of greater responsibility in the millennial kingdom. Paul said more in 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12. It is a faithful saying, For if we be with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, what? We shall also reign with him. Now this church, you and I as faithful believers, faithful believers in Berean Baptist Church, will reign with Christ. And I think that we all need to pay attention to the word faithful. Do you believe that half-hearted, unconcerned Christians, those that are unfaithful to the church and to the work of the church, do you think that there are people that will be given thrones to rule on? And so I believe that also speaks to the seriousness of church membership, that neither pride, nor laziness, nor any other excuse trumps the responsibility of God's people to participate in the work of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now finally, and very quickly, since we're out of time, I want to give you the fourth administrative group. And this is the martyrs of the tribulation. Christ will not forget any who faithfully follow him. Now the church age, understand, will end when the tribulation begins. But the gospel will still be preached in that time. Many people will die because of their commitment to it. And in those days it will take a steadfast determination to serve Christ and to hold on to that sacred commitment. Will these believers who go above and beyond, are they going to be forgotten in the kingdom? Well, we just learned in Revelation 20 verse 4, the answer to this question, let me read again. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. I saw thrones, John said, and there are martyrs that sit on these thrones. Judgment is given to them. So here we're talking about people that died in the tribulation, people that were beheaded, some were burned, they were tortured, they were mutilated... But they wouldn't surrender their faith. They would not worship the Antichrist. They would not take his number and swear allegiance to them. There is no 666 on these people. They're not deceived by any fake miracles. They resisted and so they were killed. They didn't consider their lives to be more precious than the testimony of Christ. In Revelation 6-9 it says they were slain for the word of God. And there their souls are seen underneath the altar in heaven where they cry out for vengeance. In Revelation 12 it says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and they loved not their lives to the death. So do you believe that Christ would leave them out? No. In an act of poetic justice, tribulation saints are brought back. They died, but they're brought back in the millennium and they will judge the very ones who killed their mortal bodies. So God remembers his people from all ages before the cross, after the cross, in the church age, in the tribulation, the faithful believers in Christ are promised to rule with him. Revelation 2:26 and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end to him will I give power over the nations. And now my question to you is will you be a part of that number? Are you a faithful believer? You and I, of course, live in the realm of the third group. We're in the church age. Have you surrendered to Christ? Are you a member of Christ's body, of His church? Are you justified? Are you sanctified? Are you baptized? Are you committed as a member of the Lord's church? You live in the church age. And to reign later with Christ, you must be a faithful member of the Lord's church. Now, we've been talking to believers today, mostly... There are four categories of believers that reign with Christ. And now, might I say something to unbelievers. You will not reign. If you don't believe, you will not reign. You are under the wrath of the Almighty God. And so you are committed, or commanded rather, to repent and believe the gospel. God is righteous. He rules in righteousness. He condemns the unrighteous. the everlasting fires of hell. Our encouragement to you is to come to Christ. Come to Christ before you leave this building. Call on the name of Christ. The word says, whosoever believeth in him has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation. And to that we can add, they will live in Christ's kingdom forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now again confessing our sins and confessing lord we're not all that we should be we look forward to the day that jesus will return and as we do we know that we must be committed to you we must be ready to preach the gospel must try our best to reach other people with the truth about jesus christ so they also may enter into the kingdom lord we pray that you would be with all that have heard the message today give us encouragement that you are coming back for for Christians here today going through suffering going through pain going through all kinds of troubles financial health oppression from some other reason for some other reason Lord we pray that you would let them see this hope you are coming back and there's a kingdom that's coming and we will rule in that kingdom in perfect peace harmony and in righteousness bless your people today lord call the lost to salvation open up their hearts to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ today In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke, Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronit Park, California, 94928. Additionally,